Hello, I'm Carl Hallecker, and welcome to Book Chat. With us today from the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Stephen Han, the author of A Nation Under Our Feet, Black Political Struggles in the Rural South from Slavery to the Great Migration. Stephen, welcome to Book Chat. Pleasure to be here. And also, I guess, welcome to the area. You're it's, brand new to Penn. I am, and it's very nice to be uh, back in the East Coast and in the Philadelphia area. Well, this is a, absolutely a, a fascinating book and uh, a book I've started to read some of the reviews and it's all very glowing as it deserved a, a lot of research went in here. And as we talk, uh, it really turns on ahead some of the common stereotypes that we've held about uh, slavery and life mm -hmm. as slaves. Mm -hmm. But one point that was interesting you made that rather than investigate the uh, the distinct traditional eras of African-American history, that is the periods of Civil War, Reconstruction, and Jim Crow, you approach it as one continuous piece of history. Mm -hmm. uh, why was that? Well, when I uh, began doing work on this book and I began thinking about how one, in fact, would study the political experience of both slaves and freed people, it became increasingly apparent that um, the chronology that we had customarily used uh, to study uh, national and regional politics uh, didn't really help me understand the foundations on which African Americans built and the interconnections between different arenas of political life. It also became apparent that the period between emancipation and the emancipation process and the Great Migration really worked as one uh, large era and um, rather than, there's no question that the, end of, the beginning and end of Reconstruction uh, uh, is extremely important and will always remain that way, and what we call the post-Reconstruction period, populism, progressivism, and so on. But for the, from the point of view of African Americans, uh, if one was to define out a particular political chronology, that I thought the, from the very end of slavery to the Great Migration, when in fact the first large-scale uh, movement of African Americans out of the South, where the overwhelming majority had lived, into the North, where the overwhelming majority would end up living, or la large mm -hmm. uh, segments would live, uh, would be important because it would redefine the politics of the country as a whole. Very good. Uh, you say that slavery provided the framework for African-American activism. How so? Well, I think one of the major claims of this book is that slavery is not the background to African-American politics. It's an integral part of it. Um, as I began to do my research, I was actually starting in the period immediately after slavery. But I saw a level of political mobilization and political sensibilities and practices emerging very, very quickly. And it seemed to me there was no way of explaining that adequately if they were not building on foundations that had been established under slavery. Now, most people who study African-American social and political life wouldn't think about slaves as political people because officially they weren't political people. We think about politics in relationship to the electoral arena, uh, which is all well and good, but if you think about it, uh, if politics was just uh, participating in voting, then uh, the history of human politics is a very short one. Um, so I began to uh, ask myself and to ask the material how to think about how people who were enslaved and people who were not part of the official arenas of political life in fact could conduct and practice politics themselves. And so I began to develop the arguments about the book, not necessarily by emphasizing continuities, but by suggesting how different forms of political life 
built on um, uh, foundations that were established before. So I, I would suspect your uh, writings and the conclusions that you did come to probably contradict uh, what people have generally been taught about slaves. Well, I, I think that's right. Um, for one thing, I discovered that slaves were much more conversant with uh, local and national politics than we had imagined, that they had their own interpretations of what was going on, and that these interpretations were really consequential in motivating them to act uh, in particular um, ways. I mean, I think that uh, is extremely important. Also, one of the things I ask uh, readers, um, whether they are general readers or scholars, is to think about the post-Civil War African-American experience by looking out from slavery, by thinking about, again, the ideas and aspirations and sensibilities of African-Americans, politically speaking, coming out of slavery. And one of the emphases uh, that I do a lot with in the book is to discuss um, aspirations that not, were not necessarily tied up simply with what we define as civil and political rights and equality, with economic opportunities, with integrationism, but uh, around issues of community development and self-governance. In some cases, separatism, which is something that they learned as slaves. Uh, you state that after the Nat Turner Rebellion, the most significant contribution slave slaves made to the anti-slavery cause was runaway slaves. Uh, well, first of all, can you talk just a little briefly about the Nat Turner Rebellion for us? Well, the Nat Turner Rebellion occurred in 1831, and that's one of a handful of what we regard as slave revolts that took place in the United States. It took place in Southampton County, Virginia. Uh, it was led by a slave who was a religious exhorter, um, as well as a locally influential uh, person. He organized a small number of slaves himself. We're not entirely sure what he was planning to do. And of course, the story of the Nat Turner Rebellion, the PBS just did a very interesting uh, series on this. It's, it's multiple stories and multiple perspectives. Um, after Nat Turner, there were a series of insurrection scares that took place, but no major slave revolts, I would argue, until the Civil War, which one of the points I try to make in the book is that we need to understand the war itself as involving a slave rebellion, massive one, probably the greatest in modern history. Um, but what I, what I mean by the um, point about runaway slaves is that as the sectional crisis developed and the tensions between the slave states and the free states uh, um, uh, grew, that runaway slaves uh, presented a tremendous challenge to maintaining the Union. The Union would be maintained half slave and half free if it was to be. Uh, some people thought it couldn't be. Um, so long as the uh, principle of comedy was adhered to, which was the state, the free states would respect, in effect, the laws of the slave states. And uh, the fugitive slave law was one of those laws that was to consecrate the idea of comedy. But runaway slaves constantly tested this, and one of the things that the anti-slavery movement did, which included many African Americans, was to encourage uh, runaways to try to protect runaways and refuse to return them. Uh, from the point of view of Southern slaveholders, if their slave property was not going to be safe in the Union, that um, they didn't believe that it was worth staying in the Union. Um, Steve, before the break, you were telling us about fugitive slaves and mm -hmm. their impact on uh, the movement for freedom. 
so we're coming up to the Civil War by 1860 now. How did slaves react to the possibility uh, of realizing that their freedom might just be around the corner? Well, I think they had uh, were much more optimistic about their freedom being around the corner than other people in the United States were. The Republican Party, of course, in 1860 ran on a platform that did not oppose slavery where it existed. Their uh, platform was opposing the expansion of slavery into the Western territories. And Lincoln, after he was elected, assured um, uh, white Southerners and now new Confederates that he had no intention of moving against slavery uh, within the states. But the interesting thing about this story is that uh, slaves had a very different view of this. They assumed, since their masters regarded Lincoln as a great enemy, that uh, Lincoln therefore must be their friend and that all the nasty things that southern slaveholders were saying about Republicans about their intentions to free the slaves, to divide up the plantations, were in fact what the Republican uh, Party and the Lincoln administration intended to do. So you find a lot of interesting evidence of slaves reacting both to Lincoln's election and his inauguration uh, by um, marching off plantations in a, in, a, in a few cases and by mobilizing themselves. And of course one of the first things that happens is that once the Union Army invades the South, uh, slaves within the vicinity of the army when they uh, find out um, that they establish camp, they leave their plantations and farms. I argue rebel against the authority of their owners and head to Union lines. Now the Union Army was not interested in this, was not trying to provoke um, rebellion by flight on the part of slaves, but all of a sudden now the Union side and the Republican Party and the Lincoln administration were going to have to deal with this. So um, to that extent, the slaves, even if their interpretation of what Lincoln's intentions were wrong, um, that it had important political consequence. And I, and I suppose this proved to be a real embarrassment for the slaveholders who tried to sell the image that the slaves were just happy as clams on a plantation. Well, I, you know, for a long time, even after the slave, the image of the loyal slave holds on very tenaciously, and there are ways in which um, freed people themselves uh, in the very, very uh, ferociously violent atmosphere of the post-Civil War period have certain investments in maintaining it themselves. But certainly during the war, um, by the uh, latter phases of the war, um, nearly half a million slaves are behind Union lines and uh, 150,000 of them uh, join the Union Army and take up arms against their owners. Now, uh, now we're right up to the end of the Civil War, just ended here. Now, former slaves had did have some uh, expectations about land redistribution. Redistri uh, what were those? Well, um, slaves, like many subject populations, especially rural subject populations in the world, uh, always associated freedom with control over, over land. I mean, this was the source of their subsistence. And they imagined that if freedom was to come, that it wouldn't simply come in a narrow legalistic way, that it would obviously be accompanied, uh, I mean, they had a, sp you know, in, in their political sensibilities, the spiritual and the secular were very mm -hmm. interconnected. Um, some of them were increasingly familiar with um, the Bible, with the stories of Exodus, um, Leviticus, 
and that land would uh, come along uh, with it. And there was more to it than that because during the war itself, the Union uh, side uh, enacted confiscation acts that put a great deal of land, nearly, nearly a million acres, under the control of the federal government. And, and uh, William Sherman himself, uh, for complicated reasons, uh, enacted a massive land reform policy along the coast of South Carolina and Georgia. So, and uh, Andrew Johnson, who succeeded Lincoln, talked about making treason odious and punishing. Um, the uh, Confederates and former slaveholders, mm -hmm. so the, sl the slaves now freed people assumed that this was going to mean land for them. After all, they had worked the land, they regarded this as, um, as theirs. Uh, so let's talk a little about the Christmas insurrection of the insurrection scare of 1865. What was that? Well, uh, this is one of the things I got very interested in and uh, focused my attention on the importance of communication as a process of political mobilization and especially rumor, uh, which is one way in which people who are in subordinate positions and who operate in very dangerous environments uh, can discuss politics among themselves. What happens is that in the summer and fall of 1865, Ironically, after Andrew Johnson made it clear that he was not going to move ahead on an official policy of land reform, indeed he was going to try to return the land that the Union mm -hmm. Army had under its control to its former owners, rumors begin to circulate among the former slaves that when Christmas came, the federal government was going to divide up the land among themselves, and counter-rumors began circulating among former slaveholders that uh, the freed people would um, rise up and take the land themselves if the union, if uh, the federal government did not um, effectively come through on this policy. So it made for a very, very tense uh, fall and early winter months, uh, uh, mobilized a lot of um, uh, former Confederate sentiment, and Johnson supported that. So one of the arguments I make in the book is that this process of political contention in the countryside uh, where slaves did, former slaves did use the land issue as a way of mobilizing in support of land reform and making political contacts uh, with each other uh, does play a role in undermining um, Johnsonian Reconstruction and paving the way uh, to what we call radical Reconstruction and the um, arrival of the franchise. And, and I suppose, too, the, uh, the whites had a long memory, remembering back three decades to the Nat Turner Rebellion and were uh, lived in constant fear of, of this insurrection and possibly others. Yes, that's right. Um, uh, whatever they might have wanted to say publicly about the loyalty of uh, the slaves, that they recognized that um, the possibility of insurrection was always present. Uh, what was the Union League, uh, and can you uh, please discuss its recruiting efforts? Right. You know, um, in the old uh, literature on Reconstruction, the uh, Union League stands out as this um, awful institution that did um, uh, the work of um, uh, making life very, very difficult for former Confederates in the South. The Union League was a patriotic organization that was founded in the North during the Civil War. 
uh, with the intention of trying to mobilize public support behind the war effort. Um, it also spread into the Union-occupied South during the war, also to try to mobilize um, a sentiment that was loyal to the federal government as a way of steadily undermining uh, the power militarily and politically of the Confederacy. But after the war, um, the Union League spreads uh, not only to cities and towns of the former Confederacy, but out into the rural areas, and it becomes the early institutional basis of mobilization that would be connected with the Republican Party. And in those areas of the South, where there are overwhelming black majorities, these Union Leagues are made up mostly of African Americans. Um, they're organizations based on secrecy, on oaths, on rituals that hark back to fraternal organizations or organizations like the Masons. Uh, sometimes they have a paramilitary aspect to them because it's an incredibly dangerous political world. And this brings together freed people, freed men and freed women, and whole communities in many cases uh, to make the early um, decisions about uh, participating in politics once the electoral franchise um, was granted by the federal government. Um, Steve, we were talking about the Union League before the break, but uh, let's talk, shift back now and talk about actually the phenomenon most people probably aren't aware of, but during the Reconstruction, the large number of black uh, elected officials in the South. Uh, who became these black uh, officials. I mean, where, where did they get their skills? How did mm -hmm. they get elected? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what was their fate? Well, one of the remarkable things <coughs> about Reconstruction is that uh, for the first time, really, in modern history, a formerly enslaved population uh, gains the right to vote. And so to that extent, African Americans are moving from one arena of politics to another arena of politics. And um, as, a, as an indication of their own preparation and enthusiasm for this, that the mobilization levels are incredibly high. I mean, we're talking about 90% uh, or more of those eligible to vote, registering to vote, and then a very, very high turnouts. Um, sometimes they support white Republican candidates, but especially in areas that are black majority districts, they also begin to support um, African American candidates for offices at all levels. The largest numbers were either serving in state legislatures, somewhere around 800 um, during the Reconstruction period in all of the uh, former Confederate states, but especially at the local level, in local offices, I've um, uh, tried very hard to figure out how many people we're talking about, and it's, as you can imagine, it's very hard to do that. But I was estimating somewhere between about 1,100 and maybe 14 or 1,500 were either elected or appointed to local office, sheriff, uh, surveyors, treasurers, uh, grand jurors, uh, justices of the peace, magistrates, um, and so on, which was extremely important to newly freed um, African-American populations as a way of protecting themselves, advancing their own interests, and uh, gaining them justice in a world where justice was very, very hard to find. As for who these people are, um, what I 
found is that there are interesting shifts in the nature of black leadership uh, from the end of slavery into the early period of uh, the advent of the franchise. Uh, during slavery, uh, oftentimes um, there were elders at the center of uh, plantation life, women sometimes as well as men, um, and some of these people are important in the early phases of electoral politics in terms of overseeing the registration process. But when it comes to running for office, uh, you get people who uh, sometimes they have special skills, um, skills as uh, tradespeople. Usually they have some kind of literacy. A good many of them had experience in the Union Army uh, during the Civil War and came back to their communities um, with uh, much broader horizons. Uh, than they had um, left with. They're people who oftentimes have important kinship ties because one of the things I've discovered and talk a great deal about is the important role that kinship plays in forming solidarities among people who are engaging in politics. I was just curious, after uh, Reconstruction abruptly ended, did these people face retribution more than Well, that's a very good question. Um, well before Reconstruction ended, they faced okay. retribution. Um, there's an enormous amount of political violence. We associate it with organizations like the Ku Klux Klan, but that's only one of a number of vigilante outfits that target leaders uh, within the African-American community. It's arguable that during uh, the period of Reconstruction, um, that a very significant segment of the local black leadership is assassinated or driven out. So the whole process of engaging in politics in what we regard as uh, electoral participation is incredibly dangerous from uh, uh, going to vote, from being elected to office, from having any opportunity to serve in office, from protecting the ranks against retributions of many sorts. And certainly in the last phases of Reconstruction, as it is toppled in one state after another and in one locality after another, usually with paramilitary violence, part of the process is uh, murdering or driving off the local leadership. What was the readjust the party? The readjuster part, in the post-Reconstruction period, um, oftentimes we think that um, insofar as African Americans participated in political life, it effectively came to an end with the toppling of Reconstruction regimes. But uh, I argue that this is not the case, that there are a variety of ways in which African Americans participate in politics after Reconstruction. The readjuster party was a party of um, uh, biracial uh, party. It was begun by uh, dissident whites in Virginia over the issues of whether the uh, um, state debt should be paid back in full or scaled down because it was placing tremendous burdens on the um, uh, state and on state institutions. Um, and so what the readjusters managed to do is put together a coalition of um, humble whites and African Americans uh, who not only mobilize, but actually win state power. And as a consequence of their effective participation, African Americans uh, gain important things. They gain um, uh, new resources for schools. They gain uh, local political offices. Uh, they gain a growing share of the patronage. And um, it seems to uh, be a harbinger of other uh, biracial movements in the South, it ends up being defeated, uh, as is uh, off, unfortunately the case um, in the aftermath of uh, a political violence. Just to, to sum up here for us, Steve, 
Uh, can you th what, what do you feel the legacy uh, uh, is in modern times of this black political movement following the Civil War? What, what has moved over and, and what, what do we still Well, the legacy involve? I think we're most familiar with is um, the political traditions that eventuate in the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s. And there's no question that civil rights activists in their own ways based on, ba um, uh, uh, draw upon the experiences and the sensibilities and the institutions that had been established well before. But one of the things I also emphasize, and that I don't think has been uh, discussed enough, is the powerful tradition of popular black nationalism that emerges um, most uh, notably with the Garvey uh, movement in the 19-teens and 1920s, but um, has a very, very strong resonance uh, to this very day. Uh, black uh, scholars themselves have uh, found that nationalist ideas are very, very uh, strong, especially among working class and poor black uh, communities in um, now urban areas across the country. And I try to suggest in the conclusion of the book that we might see this coming out, not only the period um, after slavery, but out of the experience of slavery itself. Well, Dr. Stephen Hahn, thank you so much well, for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me this on the is, show. This is great, and I encourage everybody to buy a copy or check it out in the library. Probably uh, buy a copy would be better. Uh, and, <laughs> for and me, nation, it would. Right, a nation under our feet. I'm Carl Holliker, and this is Book Chat.